Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, we're very glad you're with us for the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We do not have a good martini for you today, although we'll be saying a lot of wonderful things about some fantastic heroes at the end of today's podcast. But we start, Jim, with where a lot of people... Uh, reacting very negatively to yesterday's uh, speech from Joe Biden from the White House talking about new uh, COVID uh, policies. And we were a little bit off yesterday. We said it was uh, basically the same policy, and uh, he's just going to try to put a a new uh, window dressing on it. But uh, that's not what we got, because we got a little bit of a foretaste in the briefing when a reporter just happened to come up with the idea that maybe the Department of Labor could put mandates on private businesses. Uh, And Jen Psaki gives you a little smirk and says, stay tuned. So clearly that question wasn't planted in the briefing room at all and very much on schedule. Joe Biden comes out, uh, does what we said he would do, uh, putting the vaccine mandate on all federal employees and contractors. No testing option. You have to be vaccinated. And then he goes uh, and does the uh, Department of Labor rule which uh, says that uh, any business over 100 employees has to have everybody vaccinated or test once a week. So let's take a look. This speech lasted almost a half an hour. It could have been half that long and still would have been just as infuriating. But let's first of all talk about the confusion uh, that Biden is sowing here, because first of all, early on in the speech, he says uh, this is a problem entirely of the unvaccinated. They're the reasons the hospitals are full and we can't move on. While the vaccines provide strong protection for the vaccinated, We read about and hear about and we see the stories of hospitalized people, people on their deathbeds among the unvaccinated over the past few weeks. This is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And then just a couple of minutes later, he says we have to protect the vaccinated from the unvaccinated. The bottom line, we're going to protect vaccinated workers from unvaccinated co-workers. We're going to reduce the spread of COVID-19 by increasing the share of the workforce that is vaccinated in businesses all across America. And then for much of the speech, Jim, he was in hectoring, disappointing dad mode. Uh, He must have learned that from watching Obama. Very disappointed. Here he's talking about how his patience is running thin. We've been patient, but our patience is wearing thin. And your refusal has cost all of us. And then uh, finally, he said this. This is not about freedom or personal choice. It's about protecting yourself and those around you, the people you work with, the people you care about, the people you love. So it's not about freedom, Jim. And anytime a politician says it's not about freedom, you can bet uh, that freedom is an issue here. So uh, a lot of things to break down here, which uh, we'll probably banter back and forth. Uh, what was your takeaway? I know from the morning jolt, you said it was probably not effective, but what were your big takeaways? Well, Greg, I could talk about this for two hours, <laughs> in part because I just did on the editors. No. Um, <laughs> but I think one of the, the, the aspects that jumps out to me the most is, yeah. first of all, if the Delta variant had come along, I'm sure... We probably you know, we probably be in much better shape. It probably would not be nearly as big a deal that 80 million Americans are unvaccinated. And oh, by the way, let's keep in mind that you know that sounds really bad, but it also is part reflects the fact that 208 million uh, Americans have at least one dose, and that comes out to 
Uh, 73.4% of those who are eligible, which means everybody 12 years and older, that's 75% of U.S. adults, actually 75.3, and 92.6% of American seniors have gotten at least one dose. So, you know, we, it's not, you, a lot of the discussion around this will focus on, oh, can you believe there are so many Americans who are unvaccinated, these darn anti-vaxxers, blah, we stink as a country, blah. Actually, no, we've had a really darn extensive effort at this. We're doing pretty darn well at this. Um, if Afghanistan had not gone so bad, if the new inflation numbers were not so bad, they hadn't been bad for several months, if the numbers from Customs and Border Protection about encounters at the southwest border with Mexico had not been so bad, I don't think Biden would have taken this tone. I think what you saw there is not just a desperate a president who was desperate to get people talking about anything except the fact that the Taliban is doing victory parades on the 20-year anniversary of 9-11. He desperately wants Americans to stop talking about the fact that Americans still left in Afghanistan. Um, he doesn't want people talking about inflation. He doesn't want people talking about immigration. He doesn't talk about this you know, infrastructure deal that they supposedly had a deal on back in June has not yet come to uh, passage through Congress when Democrats control both the House and Senate. Look, you've seen the discussion in the last you know, couple of weeks, the discussion of this is a failed presidency already. And maybe it's a little harsh to make that sweeping conclusion so far. But Biden is very much in the ditch. His approval rating is really bad. And so he desperately needs Americans to stop talking about all this bad news. And he needs to refocus all of their anger at him. And he's decided the unvaccinated Americans are going to be it. Now, as I tried to lay out in today's morning, Joel, one of the things like, so there was this contradiction at the heart of the speech, which is that if you're vaccinated, you are protected. You don't need to worry about anything. You're going to be just fine. And he pointed to, you know, the extremely low rates of people who have breakthrough infections and extremely low rates of people who end up in the hospital after they're, after they're vaccinated. However, he also said, we're going to protect vaccinated workers from unvaccinated coworkers. Well, if the vaccine protects you, you're not really all that at risk from an unvaccinated coworker. The only problem is if your unvaccinated coworkers get sick in such enormous numbers, they end up swamping the local hospital. Um, the other problem is if you see every unvaccinated American as a threat, the 80 million unvaccinated American adults or you know, and teenagers, well, there are also 50 million Americans who aren't unvaccinated, who can't, get unva who can't get vaccinated, the 50 million American children who are age 11 or younger. Those folks aren't going to get access to a vaccine until midwinter, according to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. So there's really 130 million people. But, you know, I, there's no point getting mad at the kids for not doing BLF. But of course, the virus doesn't, you know, doesn't uh, draw that distinction. If you know, the, 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 hear this fear of, oh, God, you know, these dumb unvaccinated people, uh, every one of them is an opportunity for this vaccine to, for, I'm sorry, every one of them is an opportunity for this virus to mutate into a variant that can resist the vaccines. Well, you know, we've had this virus around for nearly two years now. It has not developed into a version that can be, uh, that the vaccines are powerless against. It's possible it never turns out that way. But if you're really going to worry about, you know, every unvaccinated American is a threat, you probably should be working about this, worrying also about these several billion people around the world who are still not vaccinated. And today's morning jolt, I go through a whole bunch of really high, pop high population countries like Russia, Bangladesh, Indonesia, Pakistan, India, all of them have uh, vaccination rates that are way lower than the you know, lowest vaccination rate you'll find in any U.S. state. So really, you don't have to worry about some terrible new variant coming out of an Alabama. You probably should worry about it coming out of an Indian or a Nigerian or a Russian or, or something like that. So like, you know, you're just going to have to live with the risk of this you know, variant emerging sometime in the next couple of years because we're not going to vaccinate the entire world. God, you know, I think really hard to imagine a scenario where it happens, you know, in the next 18 months or so. 
Um, that's that's where we stand. And I, I sneak suspicion is this was an exercise in scapegoating by the president, recognizing that he's in deep political trouble. And, he, you know, um, that right now, the one thing that unifies a whole bunch of Democrats is that they absolutely positively hate the unvaccinated with the raging passion of a thousand sons going supernova. And this gave them a chance to, to feel some, you know, really intense hate at them, feel good about the idea. We're going to make it almost impossible for you to work if you don't want to get vaccinated. Different uh, ideas just uh, just keep coming to my head here. First of all, uh, the government overreach here, and you, neither you nor I are lawyers. And some people say it's a slam dunk for him. Some people say it's a slam dunk for the, the governors who are already lining up to challenge it. But the sad part is there are lots of polls already out there that are in favor in general of vaccine mandates. They were usually more about whether businesses uh, should be able to do it. If the same numbers apply, and it's usually 60% or above, even in swing states, that are in favor of this, that's a big problem. That's a really big problem because if you give the government uh, the ability to do this in one situation, it's going to make it a whole lot easier for them to do it in other situations. And so the idea that this is just going to happen and he's daring people to stop him, whether it's in the courts or, or through legislation, but that won't happen at the federal level. I think it's a power grab here, Jim, and I don't see the American people really lining up to stop it. Yeah, this is all of the worst instincts of the Obama administration. I have a pen and I have a phone, you know, and uh, I don't have the authority to uh, uh, end deportations of DACA's and, and, you know, the dreamers. Oh, wait, yes, I do. Never mind. I don't need Congress to act. You know, um, we see this again. You saw this in the eviction moratorium where he says, you know, we kind of know we kind of know we're going to lose the Supreme Court, but it's going to take a long time for the Supreme Court to decide on this. So we're going to do this anyway. You know, it's the same mentality of I can do this until someone stops me, which is not the principle of a constitutional government. And uh, more things he didn't talk about that he needed to. Uh, no reference to natural immunity. Uh, there was also a report out, Jen, that they're just starting to take a look at how this might affect pregnancy. So if you're looking to start a family, that's not exactly the most encouraging thing to, on one hand, uh, have some people say, eh, we should probably start looking at this. And then at the same time, Biden's going, oh, no, if you want to keep your job, you got to get this. Yeah, because, you know, every American business can't wait to get into the vaccine enforcement business, you know. <laughs> You're, you're, you know, making Coca-Cola or construction or, uh, you know, you're, you're, you know, embroidering satchels, whatever your business. Now, all of a sudden, you're basically running a health, not just, you know, you're basically in charge of verifying. You got to be able to figure out whether that uh, vaccination card they have is authentic or something like that. Everybody, every business, by the way, for what it's worth, uh, my, one of my colleagues was saying, he's heard from people who run businesses like, I'm not doing this, yeah. you know. Yeah, I've been taking a long, you know, it's, it's going to take forever the Department of Labor to figure out I'm not doing this. I'm not qualified to do this. Uh, you know, uh, that basically they're kind of throwing up their hands and saying, I don't I my the point of my business is my business. The point of my business is not to run around, make sure, every, you know, not to do the government's job for them, making sure that all of my employees are vaccinated. So we'll see how this shakes out. But there's going to be an enormous amount of, if not put outright pushback, then extraordinary foot dragging going on. Good. That's exactly what it should be. But your point uh, at the outset of your analysis was spot on. This is mainly an effort to distract um, from Afghanistan, from inflation, from the border, and from just a host of failures of this administration. I will give him one point. For some reason, there's been a huge reluctance of anybody to ever talk about therapeutics. And he actually said some good things about monoclonal antibodies and that they're going to try to push those out for people who have already contracted it. So that was the one tiny silver lining in this otherwise dreadful speech. 
All right, Jim, let's uh, talk about something a little bit different. And that's brand new sponsor, Masterworks. Look, Biden's reckless infrastructure spending coupled with Pelosi's stimulus plans means the Fed is printing money quicker than ever. In fact, 40% of all U.S. dollars ever printed were created in the last 12 months. And we're already feeling the effect. Inflation is already rising at its fastest pace since 2008. In fact, there was just a report out today uh, uh, in August, 8.3% uh, at a very, very dangerous clip. So how are professional investors preparing for this nightmare scenario? They're turning to an under-the-radar asset class where prices have nearly doubled S&P returns between 1995 and 2020. It's a real physical asset that isn't gold or real estate or anything related to crypto. And for the first time ever, everyday investors can allocate towards this $6 trillion asset class. It's no longer exclusive to the ultra-wealthy thanks to one revolutionary startup. More than 200,000 members have already signed up and their wait list keeps getting longer. But lucky for you, they've hooked us up with a special link to skip that. Just head to masterworks.io slash martini. That's masterworks.io slash martini. Previous offers have sold out in hours, so don't wait around. See important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. All right, Jim, let's talk about our next bad martini, although it's a lot of crazy here. And it's kind of a double-fisted one related to Larry Elder. He is, of course, the conservative talk show host who, if Gavin Newsom gets recalled next week, which is looking less and less likely, uh, Larry Elder might very well be in position to be the next governor of California as he's running as one of the replacement candidates. Well, the long knives of the left, and that certainly includes the media, have been out for Larry Elder ever since the polls started to tighten up in the recall race and Elder started to get some traction in the replacement race. Perhaps the worst uh, came from the Los Angeles Times opinion page a few weeks ago when they claimed that Larry Elder was the black face of white supremacy. That's how they uh, basically decide that everybody on the right is a racist, regardless of your situation. Larry Elder grew up in South Central, for heaven's sake. But now, Jim... A weird dichotomy of coverage here on a recent story with Larry Elder. He was campaigning in California, obviously just a few days to go before the election. Uh, he was walking down the street and he's uh, assaulted by a protester. It's a white woman wearing a gorilla mask, throwing an egg at this black Republican candidate. And obviously, if this had been a Democrat, this would have been wall-to-wall -wall coverage, and uh, there would have been probably protests in the streets and so forth. Uh, but very little coverage uh, from the mainstream. Uh, the conservative media outlets certainly covered it. But then the, uh, the Los Angeles Times finally decided to cover it about two or three days later. And the way that they tweeted this out is just bizarre. They're title, their description of their tweet is LAPD is investigating altercation involving Larry Elder at Venice homeless encampment. And it's not a picture that most of us have seen of him walking down the street and this crazy woman in the gorilla mask throwing an egg at him. It's Larry Elder embracing a young woman uh, at this event uh, in a gentle way. He's uh, touching her cheek, but it's looking like he's slapping her across the face. She's, ju she's jumped on Twitter and said, what are you people doing? We are just about to embrace and hug. This is completely taken out of context. And so the, the left, the mainstream media doing everything possible to just smear Larry Elder might not make a difference since it looks like Newsom's going to survive anyway. But uh, the way that this has been covered so unfairly from top to bottom is just disgusting. Yeah, Greg, I can't think of a clearer definition of white privilege than being able to throw an egg at a black man while wearing a gorilla mask and to have much of society decide it's not a big deal.
Now, for a good portion of 2020, we heard a great deal about the intrinsic racism in America and white privilege and the idea that uh, not only do black lives matter, but that racism manifested itself in a million little ways, some obvious, some not so obvious, that ends up being this mounting psychic toll upon African-Americans, this constant sensing that, that they're Yet, you know, legally they're considered equal citizens with equal rights, but lots of Americans, it's not really the case. They don't really feel it. They don't really practice it. That in a million little slights, a million little ways, it becomes clear that they're second-class citizens or they're not real Americans or that they're uh, not treated with respect the way everyone else is. Um, this would see, you know, here's the, you know, I, I think there's a certain amount of truth to that. I think it's actually, you can point to this. I, you, you listen to African-Americans, and I remember this anecdote. I remember one woman who'd worked as a, maybe in a fast food business, some sort of service industry. And she talked about the number of times people would uh, put money on the counter and slide it over instead of putting it in her hand when they're just, you're giving change or something like that. The idea that they literally didn't want to touch them, even though it was that. This is before we were all paranoid about handshakes. Um, but at the time being this kind of a sense of like, people feel like they were, there was a sense that people didn't want to touch them. They're almost untouchable, like over in India. However, the fact that so much of that rhetoric we heard in 2020 is vividly clear in the fact that a black conservative, no matter how terrible they are, they are attacked, no matter how vehemently and openly and clearly racist the attacks against them are, so many folks on the left simply don't care. They simply cannot recognize it as racism. In their eyes, racism is only perpetuated by white conservatives against black liberals. And if you flip them, they, they, it's like they get struck blind they, in that center bullet uh, uh, streaming movie. They just can't, bird box, they just can't see it. They just see it, they, it completely escapes their attention. The treatment of Larry Elder is ludicrous out there in California. And I think it, you know, it's kind of fascinating that we found the one situation in which a white woman can physically assault or, or you know, insult or degrade an African-American man and California's media simply won't care about it because she's the right kind of woman and he's the wrong kind of man. Exactly. And it's not an isolated incident, obviously. Remember Uncle Tim for Tim Scott? It's something they are very consistent on. They're harder on women and minorities that go conservative than, uh, than any other conservatives. Uh, and I don't think that there's much way to dispute that. All right, let's talk about uh, the wonderful products you can get from MyPillow. After this week, you're going to need some rest. And so MyPillow has fantastic products to do that, from the pillows to the towels to the sheets and the slippers. There's nothing better than slipping into bed with soft, comfortable sheets at the end of a long day. And now MyPillow wants you to sleep better with their Giza Dream Sheets after you've been walking around very comfortably all day in their My Slippers. For a limited time, you can get 50% off any Giza Dream Sheets with a price as low as $49.99, and you can get 50% off my slippers. Now, these Giza Dream Sheets, imagine sliding into the most comfortable sheets you will ever own, guaranteed. They're made from the world's best cotton, grown only in a region between the Sahara Desert, the Mediterranean Sea, and the Nile River. Its long staple cotton makes it ultra soft and breathable. These sheets are available in a variety of colors and sizes. They're machine washable, have a 60-day money-back guarantee, and a one-year limited warranty. 
But before slipping into those Giza Dream Sheets, slip out of your My Slippers. These took two years to develop at MyPillow. They're designed to be worn indoors or outdoors all day long. They're very comfortable to walk on uh, with the MyPillow foam and the impact gel. It's actually better than walking around with no shoes at all. It's amazing. Uh, it's also made with quality leather suede. But it's only for a limited time that you can get these great discounts. You can save 50% on all Giza Dream Sheets and My Slippers. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listeners square and use the promo code martini at checkout or call 800-874-0104 you'll also find deep discounts on all my pillow products including the my pillow mattress upper the my pillow towel sets and so much more don't miss the sale of the year that's mypillow.com promo code martini or call 800-874-0104 sleep better with mypillow.com all right jim not a good, a bad, or a crazy here in our third martini, but uh, an important remembrance. It's an important remembrance every year on 9-11, which of course is tomorrow, but we won't have a podcast tomorrow. Uh, 20 years ago tomorrow was, of course, the savage terrorist attacks on New York City, uh, the World Trade Center, with two planes hitting those trade centers and then collapsing just a couple of hours later. The, uh, the plane slamming into the side of the Pentagon and the plane that those heroic passengers forced to the ground and Shanksville, Pennsylvania, nearly 3,000 uh, people dead as a result of the events of that day. And then if you tack on all of those who got sick uh, after cleaning up at Ground Zero, it's about another 1,500 from what I've read. Uh, so we're looking about 4,500 total. That's not to mention the uh, families, of course, impacted by all those losses and all those injuries, uh, the military members that we've lost or, or injured, all of those many who served, their families. There's been a great sacrifice in this country, not only on that day, but in the intervening 20 years that uh, sometimes we forget about. And I think it's important not only on this day, but every day to remember the heroes among us from the first responders, of course, to those who uh, wear the uniform of our military. And uh, they have shown us the best of America, and I, I pray that we will follow their lead. Our politics have certainly not gotten better in the last 20 years, but uh, they showed us the best of America that day, uh, and I would uh, hope and pray that we would emulate it. Uh, I certainly remember where I was uh, watching the towers come down was the most indelible part of the day. The ash from that uh, collapse covering the people in lower Manhattan, absolutely chilling, and then driving home that evening and seeing the fire still burning at the Pentagon. It's a, it's a moment that, if you remember it, is seared into your memory. We've started to teach our kids about it as well. And uh, hopefully it's a day that people remember as one of great heroes and of great loss. And it's one that we should always remember. It was very well said, Greg. I think this is not how many of us expected to feel on the 20-year anniversary of 9-11. Uh, when you and I have marked this day in past years, it's kind of been this question of as Pretty much since the Islamic State was destroyed and, and ISIS really was smashed and became less and less of a factor in our lives, there's been this sense that we, as Americans, unless it was you know getting very close to the anniversary, we didn't spend a lot of time thinking about Islamist terrorism anymore. Osama bin Laden was dead. Uh, you know, uh, Baghdadi was was killed uh, recently. Um, Ayman al-Zawahiri doesn't put out the same kind of messages and just doesn't loom in our consciousness and his consciousnesses. Uh, doesn't, lo doesn't loom in our collective conscious uh, as, as much as bin Laden did. And, you know, we also had other things to worry about. And last year we've had pandemic and things like that. But we just, you know, we, we, we moved into that. And I kind of wonder, if, is that what victory in 
the war on terror looks like. We're never going to have a moment where Zawahiri shows up on the deck of the USS Missouri and signs surrender papers. Maybe it just means we're like, oh, okay, we just reach a point where we just don't worry about Islamist terrorism anymore. And that's what that's about as close to returning to normal as we're going to get. Well, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen the Taliban take over Afghanistan again. They have never separated from Al-Qaeda. They have never renounced to Al-Qaeda. Um, and they are extremely likely to go back to the uh, their old business of, of running a bed and breakfast for terror groups. Um, you talk to any terrorism expert and they say the chat rooms, all the message boards, all the places where Islamist extremists hang out, they feel really invigorated by this. They feel like this is... Allah showing that they are destined to win over the West. And this is a great shot in the arm um, for the Islamist terrorist movement. I think a lot of us look at this and say, God, you know, it's very, very likely next couple of months, next couple of years, we're going to see terror attacks being launched from Afghanistan again and dreading this prospect of, you know, God, are we going to reach the point where we have to go back into Afghanistan again? So I was feeling really down about this, but I then kind of recognized, Greg, if you, if, you know, Let's think back to September 12th. We wake up on that awful morning, knowing the world has changed, knowing things are never going to be the same, knowing the awful toll of these terror attacks. And if you'd said, what is September 11th, 2021 going to be like? We, you know, we, we had no idea what, what the next day was going to hold, much less than the next 20 years. But I think most of us would have expect, expected we would have some other terror, uh, terrible terrorist attack sometime in the next 20 years. And we had things like San Bernardino. We had things like the anthrax mailings. We had things like the Orlando Pulse nightclub shooting. We had some bad ones, but certainly nothing on the par of 9-11. And we've seen lots of ISIS terror attacks all over European cities, trucks and stabbings and, and things like that. Look, it's been bad, right? you know, but nothing on, you know, we've had no similar 9-11 and then some other day. Even things like the... Um, uh, the 7-7 bombings in, in London and things like that feel really mild compared to the indelible images of that day. And that's a win. That is a success. That, you know, the fact that Al-Qaeda, we know Al-Qaeda, you know, we, we, they, they would love to have done uh, biological weapons attacks and they did not. Turns out the anthrax mailings was that nut job doctor out in Maryland or something like that. Um, they no chemical attacks. Um, the you know nuclear uh, these guys if they, if they had any possibility uh, cyber terrorism you know any, any tool that they could do to bring America to its knees and to harm Americans they would have they would have done it and they you know what happened on September twelfth really actually on September eleventh when the you know heroes on flight ninety three made sure that plane crashed down in the middle of a field and not in the Capitol building or not in the Pentagon or not in the White House or any one of these other targets that many people have speculated about. That's when the American counterattack began. And we did effectively, you know, we not only killed a whole bunch of them, not only we killed bin Laden, you know, Islamist terrorism has basically been discredited in the, in the eyes of almost anybody except a young, angry Muslim male who needs purpose in their life and basically thinks they can get it in the form of 72 virgins in the afterlife. Um, you notice that the Arab Spring came along. There really wasn't anybody in the Arab world saying, hey, we should try what bin Laden thinks. Um, in fact, some of the communiques that we found in bin Laden's hideout was him fuming about his increasing irrelevance to the state of the world. Um, and as I said, Zawahiri, we almost never seem to hear from him. People probably, if you have probably asked Americans who's Zawahiri, um, there are probably a lot of people who wouldn't remember them. So in some ways, we kind of won. Now, you do have the question of whether we're going to keep that victory or whether we're going to face something much worse. And it's the other thing I kind of wonder about, though, you know, people, you know, 
speculate, God forbid, something like that happened again, would we be as unified? And I think based on everything we've seen over the last couple of years, no, no, we would not. It is, ex- you know, it, one of the things that is extraordinarily infuriating about living in America here and now is how quickly and easily every single event that comes down the pike, pandemic, China, Russia, you know, situation at the border, any problem in American life that comes down, quickly it turns into the same old familiar red versus blue. And there's just this enormous appetite. There are a lot of Republicans who, whenever something happens, want to know how it's a Democrat's fault. There are a lot of Democrats, whenever something bad happens, want to know how is this a Republican's fault. And that's the prism that everything gets filtered through. I think that might be one of the most depressing aspects of it. It's not that I expect total, again, I don't want political unity. My colleague, Charlie Cook, made the interesting point. Again, we're in a pluralistic constitutional republic that uh, operates on democratic uh, principles. We're supposed to have divisions. We're not all supposed to agree on things. But one thing that was so crystal clear on the afternoon of September 11th is that, look, we're a flawed country. We don't always make the right decisions. We, we've, we've done all kinds of, you know, made all kinds of mistakes, made all kinds of bad decisions in our past. But a lot of innocent people died that day. Those people, they weren't the problem, right? Al-Qaeda has no reasonable point. Osama bin Laden has no legitimate argument. The world was divided into good and evil that day. And it's frustrating to see how frequently people want to throw out the concept of evil unless they want to apply it to Americans that they don't like. And that's what's, you know, kind of consumed us bit by bit, year by year. And uh, for a long time, I used to think, well, you know, people can enjoy this kind of, you know, partisan food fight. But at some point, we're going to face a terrible crisis. It's going to force us to unify. And honestly, Greg, I don't know if that's we would, we would unify. I don't know if we're capable of that anymore. So, hey, have a good weekend. NFL season starts, everybody. This is it the does. kind of depressing thoughts that naturally come when you're a Jets fan. <laughs> well, you haven't even lost a game yet. I'm getting ready. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's a difficult time. I and mean, there's always, it's always a somber anniversary. But given what we just watched with Afghanistan and obviously its connection to 9-11, it's even more difficult this year. Thinking a lot about those uh, those vets who are struggling with, with what we've seen over the last few weeks and obviously still thinking about the people who are still stuck there. So, Jim, uh, have a good weekend. Good luck to the Jets. Good luck to the Bears. And we will reconvene on Monday. See you then. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks very much for being with us. Do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast and tell your friends about us as well. Grateful for your uh, kind comments and your five-star ratings. Get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a good weekend, and please join us again on Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Joe Biden abandoned Americans and allies in Afghanistan, and now his decisions are spawning a genocide there. I'm Sarah Carter. On the latest Sarah Carter Show, I'll explain how the Biden administration is constantly lying to us and rolling over for the Taliban. I'll also bring on a good friend of mine to discuss how the terrorists that our government is expecting to behave are slaughtering the people of Panjshir. You won't hear this anywhere else. Subscribe to The Sarah Carter Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.